Welcome back to episode 44 of the Meet Kevin Report. We've got a lot to talk about today. First things first, apparently 99.82% of global land area is exposed to particulate matter above 2.5 parts per million, which is linked with lung cancer and heart disease. And it's worst in Australia and Asia. That's not that great since 99.82% is pretty much everywhere. And afterwards, I tried to do a little just Googling on it and typed in air quality based on zip codes. And you kind of look at the globe, pretty much all of the sources with the exception of a few are saying, don't worry, it's fine, air quality's fine. So I'm starting to wonder, well, who's right? These studies or what Google is telling you? Who knows anymore these days? But what we do know is, according to Bloomberg, fast money stocks, quote unquote, fast money uh, quants, that is quants that invest in stocks uh, related to fast money stocks, so stocks that are, are pretty uh, technically versed. In other words, they follow uh, technical broader market trends. Quants are apparently drawing trend lines and algorithms and rules that are saying right now the best thing to do is buy which uh, creates this sort of self-fulfilling uptrend that maybe we've been seeing. That is, quants that are using algorithmic trading data are basically saying, it's buy time. We have no idea whether that buy time is actually guiding us in the right direction. They're simply looking at technicals, which we've regularly been talking about on the channel, like sitting on top of Fibonacci support or sitting on top of the 200-day moving average. And so what's interesting here is Bloomberg's actually suggesting that if a stock benchmarks rally another 2%, you could end up seeing $80 billion of equities get bought in the matter of a day or two thanks to the way the algorithms are programmed. So in a weird way, it makes you wonder, was last year's sell-off worse because the technicals were pointing straight down? Same thing goes for potentially uptrends. Are uptrends exaggerated by technical trading? an interesting idea. And in fact, if you look at, for example, Webull and you zoom out on the day chart, what do you end up getting? Well, if you zoom out on the day chart, you see the most obvious trend ever in 2022. And that trend is straight down. I mean, quite frankly, you don't need to know anything about fundamental analysis, anything about what the market is doing. You don't have to care about anything other than say, see this one line right here. We'll even make the line a little bit bigger. There we go. One line says down, and sure enough, everything trends down. Now, obviously, I'm oversimplifying this, but I think it's very interesting that quants are now suggesting, well, since we have now broken that trend line and we're bouncing off the 200-day moving average and we're bouncing off the FIBI, and we continue to reiterate that bounce, maybe if we see as much of another 2% movement, it's time to unlock potentially $80 billion of equity inflows. Now, usually when I talk about inflows, you get a lot of people who go, oh, but Kevin, that's barely a fraction of the daily stock market volume for a particular indices or stocks or whatever. It's really important to remember that buy and hodl inflows are vastly different from trading. People who go in and out is very different from people who buy and hold. Buy and hold creates a foundation under stocks and valuations, which means you can actually support a higher trend thereafter. So I find it very interesting that Bloomberg's talking about this because it's potentially self-fulfilling. It's a way of suggesting that, hey, maybe things aren't as bad. In fact, if you keep searching on Bloomberg, what you find is now they're talking about this idea that the stock market is starting to unprice the worst case scenario. Now, they don't actually use this phrase, but I think that worst case scenario they're referring to is a Paul Volcker, 
So if the stock market starts unpricing the worst case scenario, it kind of makes you wonder, hmm, is there potentially then an opportunity to hop on the trend and buy? And does that mean maybe we take advantage of a potential dip that we get right before jobs data on the 10th or CPI data we get on the 14th or Powell uh, dips that we get either today because we have uh, you know Jerome Powell testifying before Congress today or more importantly, before the 22nd when we have the next FOMC meeting? Who knows? But it's interesting to think about what fast money is up to. And according to Bloomberg, fast money is up to buying. Okay, next, we got to talk about Biden's tax hike. Now, this is an interesting one because apparently you've got a Biden considering more tax increases. Now, nobody actually knows uh, if, uh, if this is going to go through. But I want you to see some of the proposal in Biden's budget that's just out. So let's get into it. Okay, here we go. Here it is. Joe Biden is now proposing hiking payroll taxes on Americans making over $400,000. If you remember back to the campaign days, Joe Biden, no, not my campaign for governor of California, but Joe Biden's campaign, uh, where Joe Biden pitched the idea of nobody making under uh, $400,000 is going to see any kind of tax increases. Of course, then we had some beautiful inflation, which a lot of people are saying, oh, it's Biden's fault. And then others say, no, it's equally Trump's fault. And everybody's basically pointing the fingers and angry at what's happening at the economy, suggesting inflation is really just a fantastic way to tax people so that way we can inflate away the government's insane debt. But Joe Biden is now proposing hiking payroll taxes on Americans making over $400,000 per year. Apparently, this would also then allow the government new power in negotiating prices for Medicare. Joe Biden says here, quote, the budget I am releasing this week will make the Medicare trust fund solvent beyond 2050 without cutting a penny in taxes. Now, this is actually very interesting because if you look at the U.S. Treasury's forecast uh, for what our debt is going to look like, it's absolutely horrible. It could not be worse. I'm going to show you a really scary chart, and it's straight up from the U.S. Treasury Department's uh, summary financial report of the U.S. government's finances. It's called the Executive Summary from 2022. And what we end up finding is if we zoom in over to uh, one of the last pages in the report, it's the seventh page uh, in this report. Uh, this is uh, the Executive Summary. The actual report is hundreds of pages long. But if we look at this report, take a look at what it says here. An unsustainable fiscal path. And the purpose of this report is to give people an understanding of how crappy things are today. This is not to say this is what is going to happen in the future. It's basically just to say, if we continue spending like we are today, uh, things are going to be real bad, okay? And so what do you have over here? Well, take a look at this. Receipts, spending, and debt. So I want you to understand this chart because it's really important. And ignore this little commentary that I made over here. Uh, we'll explain that in just a moment. So what this chart shows is as a percentage of GDP, what are our expenses? And the chart basically says, well, let's assume defense spending stays stable as a percentage of GDP. Let's assume Medicare, uh, Medicaid spending and Medicare spending stay stable as a percentage of GDP. Remember, Medicaid is for poor. Medicare is for older. Get it? Aid, poor. Care, old. Anyway, Social Security. Obviously, uh, a very large uh, entitlement program. Some people take offense to the idea that this is called an entitlement program, but that is what it is. It's something you pay into and then you get back in the future. Anyway, 
So if we keep those stable as a per percentage of GDP, which means even as our economy grows, the percentage that goes to Social Security can remain stable. In this case, it sits just under 5%. So we assume that Social Security spending stays at that level. Well, what ends up happening is take a look at this. Total spending on interest skyrockets. Uh, and that's because total, while all of these government expenditures might stay flat as a percentage of GDP, we'll actually see total spending increase on almost this, uh, this slope that's extremely unsustainable. And the difference between that slope that's unsustainable and the flat spending as a percentage of GDP, all of this orange that I'm drawing in in the triangle right here, all of that is actually net interest spending right there. That's because basically the government's debt is just gonna to continue to grow and then we'll continue to monetize the debt. In other words, print more money, then pay more interest on the money that we've printed. And then all of a sudden we're basically in potentially 2090 where we're spending 50% of our GDP on government expenses and debt. 25-ish percent for government spending and 25% on debt. That would be really terrible. Now, yesterday when we were looking at this, I wrote down that this assumes that we have zero austerity, which we don't want, zero contribution changes, zero tax changes, and of course it also assumes that we wouldn't have this massively profitable uh, tax revenue from a, a quickly increasing GDP uh, through, let's say, new innovations. Like, let's say artificial intelligence helps us 10x our GDP, well then obviously the debt we have today would be easy to pay off because our, our economy would be so much larger, right? And so what's very interesting is that very much the next day after uh, I'm, I'm looking at this sort of data with our team, what do we have here? We have Joe Biden basically talking about contribution changes and tax changes. That's because we are on an unsustainable path. And so it's no surprise that you have two things here. You're basically talking about increasing taxes and decreasing expenses for Medicare. This only helps with Medicare because Medicare and Social Security are widely expected to be insolvent. In other words, not able to pay 100% of promised benefits anymore somewhere by 2030 to 2033. Uh, and so over here, Joe Biden's suggesting, hey, well, if we just increase taxes, we'll be able to fund Medicare all the way through 2050 without cutting a penny in benefits. That's actually a key line because some people say or suggest, oh no, Medicare and Social Security will never go insolvent. We'll just end up paying less money out. But that's not what people want to hear. Nobody wants to hear that the programs they're paying into might not be able to fully make their payments anymore. Anyway, so the president's budget, which will be released on Thursday, proposes raising Medicare taxes from 3.8% to 5% on annual incomes over $400,000. Now keep in mind, that is a 1.2% increase for people making over 400K. That does not mean if you make $401,000, you have to pay another 1.2% on everything below that. It's literally just on the amount above 400K. So if you make $420,000, you're paying 1.2% more on $20,000. Anyway, but it will also eliminate a loophole business owners and how income earners can exploit to avoid additional taxes. Now, I'd like to know a little bit more detail on this because, you know, sometimes what, what Biden calls an exploit is actually a feature <laughs> of the system. So we'll see if we can get a little bit more detail on this. Medicare portion of the budget uh, will be uh, more publicly announced later today move comes ahead of negotiations on the debt ceiling. And that's obviously very important because we expect 
that since Republicans have taken control of the House, it's going to be a lot harder to get things passed. Most uh, Americans are kind of under the impression that, yeah, nothing's going to get passed this year. But budgets have to get passed, right? Debt ceilings have to get passed. So obviously there are going to be areas where negotiations need to occur. Uh, tax increases, though, probably not something Republicans are going to go for, uh, especially an increase of 1.2% on those making over $400,000. Now, even though that sounds reasonable because potentially you're only taxing those at the top, you know, half of 1%, it's still going to be seen as a tax increase, especially once we get more details on maybe some of these business loopholes. Ah, here it is. Okay, here we go. In addition to higher Medicare tax rate on an income above 400k, see it's in addition to, Biden's plan would eliminate a loophole that allows certain business owners who receive income through an S corporation, a limited liability company, or limited partnership to avoid paying taxes on Medicare taxes, uh, to avoid paying Medicare taxes on some of their income. Wow, that's actually a, a very big deal. So, in case you don't know, a lot of business owners use S-corporations, not just people over $400,000. In fact, I would venture to say the vast majority of business owners or contractors who make as much as $100,000 of income, or should I say as low as $100,000 of income, it would make sense for them to have an S-corporate structure. The reason for that is if let's say you have $100,000 of income, and you create an S corporation, you could pay yourself a salary of let's say $50,000 and then save taxes on the other $50,000 to the tune of potentially uh, up to $133,000 to the tune of somewhere around 12.4-ish percent. None of the exact percentages right now uh, because we're <laughs> putting this together with breaking news here. But the idea is that, hey, if let's say ordinarily on $100,000, you pay, let's say, 12.4% in uh, Social Security, Medicare, and otherwise taxes. That's $12,400. Well, if you open an S corporation, you can you could basically pay yourself a salary of 50K and then take distributions of the other half, the other 50K, and now you're only paying that 12.4% on your earned income, which is that $50,000 salary you pay yourself. As long as that salary is deemed to be reasonable for somebody who would have to take over your job, not necessarily including things like brand value or a reputation you've created, but just actually doing your job, then you could save 12.4% on, let's say, that other 50K. That works out to about $6,200 in savings, which is more than enough to pay another $1,000 to $2,000 to a CPA to file an S corporate tax return or some sort of uh, additional tax filing, right? It's it, it way more compensates you to have an S corp because you're saving so much more money. It basically pays for itself. Now there's a limit because some of these taxes fall off anyway once you get to about $133,000 of income. So the S corp benefit really helps people in that range of somewhere between probably 50K of contractor income to maybe $130,000, $140,000 of income. And, and that's a lot of people. And so now, while not necessarily the entire 12.4% is, is going to be uh, uh, impacted here because let's see, Medicare, I think this is, they're only saying this is Medicare, Medicare tax rate. So that gives you an idea of uh, how much, how the S-Corp structure works, right? So the Medicare tax rate is only 2.9%. Okay, perfect. So that's both the employer and the self-employed. So and now to make this very specific to Biden's plan, it says here, Biden's plan would eliminate a loophole that allows certain business owners who receive income through an S corporation or particular partnership to avoid paying Medicare taxes on some of their income. Okay, so that's only 2.9%. 
So in other words, if you are an S corporate owner and you're making $100,000, you're paying yourself a salary of 50K, the difference in tax to you would actually be about $1,450 more that you would have to pay on every $50,000 of income uh, that, uh, that basically you're paying yourself through an S corporation. Uh, so that is, that is actually a tax increase on people under $400,000. That's going to get a lot of blowback from people in the Biden camp. Now, of course, a lot of people are going to look at that and go, hey, why is that whole S corporate loophole fair anyway? Well, there are counter arguments. Some of the arguments are that, well, if you're an employee at a company, half of your uh, payroll taxes are being paid for by the employer anyway. And so by incentivizing entrepreneurs and small businesses, maybe you could actually increase GDP. Maybe you could increase spending, right? That's the idea. That's why there are business tax write-offs is because the government wants to incentivize spending and GDP growth. There's a reason you get tax benefits uh, when, when you spend money. It's actually stuff we talk about pretty regularly in the Elite Hustlers course, which is a course I have on helping people make more money, whether they're employed or uh, or self-employed. In fact, somebody who's self-employed, for example, could have a side hustle that as long as it's making money, start opening themselves up to tax benefits that are much larger than would ordinarily be afforded to just employ. Those are things we talk about in the Elite Hustlers course down below, next to the link for all of the other programs on building your wealth, like the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Group, uh, the Stocks and Site Group, where we have course member live streams every day. Uh, Elite Hustlers has its own live streams as well, as well as access to the uh, course member live streams. But anyway, this is interesting because that plan from Joe Biden is actually an increase on people making less uh, than $400,000. That could, somebody making a hundred grand might be paying around $1,500 more in taxes if this Biden plan goes through, if they use an S corporation. The plan would also dedicate proceeds from the Obama tax uh, to a specific hospital insurance trust fund. It doesn't necessarily impact the funding or taxes. Obama tax is, is a tax that you have to pay over a certain number uh, amount of income anyway. I think it's uh, like 1% or 2% above over 200. Let me see here. Obama tax. Uh, Obama income uh, investment income tax. Uh, what is it? 3.8% on net investment income, but that is only above a certain uh, a certain income. A net investment income. Here it is. Married filing jointly, $250,000. So any income over $250,000 that's investment income gets a 3.8% additional tax. So what's really interesting is if you live in a state like California, you know, once you start adding in all of these additional taxes, you're getting less than half of your money, right? So uh, you, you look at... Uh, top rate of federal taxes somewhere around 39%, California around like 13.9%, right? Now you're sitting at somewhere around, uh, let's see, 39 uh, plus 13. I mean, you're already over over 50% uh, alone. <laughs> you know, you're somewhere around uh, 52%. Add the investment tax right here of 3.8%. You're knocking on the door of California taxes, Fed taxes, and net investment income of somewhere around 55% of taxes. It's wild. Now I get it. A lot of people are like, well, just move out of California, but then you're still paying like 43, 44% uh, of, of your, your income and in taxes in certain cases if your income is, is high enough. So, uh, you know, but then again, you know, Biden's argument here is, well, everybody's got to pay their fair share. And I, I, I suppose if more than 50% of your income going to the government is considered fair, uh, okay. I think it's somewhere around the top 1% of taxpayers pay somewhere around 40% of all of the government's income tax revenue. It's, it's pretty insane. 
Uh, anyway, so that gives you some insight into Biden's new income tax hike, which will affect people making under $400,000 a year. I will particularly argue it will most affect entrepreneurs making somewhere between eighty dollars to $140,000. That's kind of that hit zone where you're going to get slapped in the face the most. Uh, however, it will also, of course, affect people making between $140,000 to $200,000 to $300,000 because they too will have to pay that increased tax between, let's say, the salary they pay themselves, let's say fifty, and around $133,000 where that Medicare uh, tax goes away anyway. Let me see here. Uh, Medicare, let's see here. Med uh, Medicare tax limit S-Corp. Let's go take a look at that. So in excess, let's say as an employer must withhold additional Medicare tax on over 200. That's fine. What income is subject to the 3.8% Medicare tax? Let's see here. 3.8% Medicare tax. Ah, interesting. Uh, so there's a surtax. Good Lord, tax. Somebody in the comments here writes, uh, the tax code is an abomination. <laughs> You're not wrong about that. It's super insane. So let's see here. Uh, in total, FICA tax, 15.3%. And uh, let's see, the social security base of 12.4% plus 2.9% Medicare taxes. Good Lord. Okay. And then a surtax past 200. All right. So here we go. So S corporation wages are subject to FICA taxes, uh, but dividend distributions are not. FICA taxes include 12.4% of social security plus 2.9% of Medicare taxes. Right. Social Security, uh, those are the taxes that go up to that $133,000 range, plus another 2.9% Medicare taxes for an unlimited amount of income. Good Lord. Okay, so let's clarify the numbers here a little bit. And let me look at the actual 2023 uh, Social Security Limit S-Corp because the numbers are crazy. Oh, good Lord. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the numbers have changed. This is actually really interesting. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's let's catch up on some of these numbers. Uh, da, 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 da. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm going to clarify all, all of that in, in sort of a, a more clear manner because I have some more detail and I think it's going to make a lot more sense if I just clarify it all. So let's clarify that all. Okay. Let's Let's repeat some of this, but just clarify it. So Joe Biden is officially planning on raising taxes on people who do indeed make less than $400,000, which is in contrast to his original campaign promise to not increase taxes on people making under $400,000. Now, Joe Biden's plan initially will seem like that is not true. He's only increasing taxes on people making over 400 k But this information just out actually goes a lot deeper than that. Let's take a look at this in detail. So Joe Biden is suggesting increasing the contribution of Medicare taxes from 3.8% on income above 400K to 5%. Now, initially, first things first, we look at this and we go, okay, got it. So more Medicare taxes for people making over $400,000. So if you make over 400K, only the amount over 400K gets an additional 1.2% tax, right? So if you make $420,000, 20,000 times 1.2% means you're paying an extra $240 on every $20,000 over $400,000. 
That seems fair, right? I mean, yes, after all, that's Joe Biden's idea, is that, hey, you know, we just want people to pay their fair share, even though those in the top 1% pay about 40% of all of the government's revenue, and some people, especially uh, those making over $400,000, pay somewhere between 44 to 55% in taxes, depending on what state they live in, which means in some cases you're paying more than half of uh, your entire earned income to the government. Let's just focus on where does this actually increase taxes for people making less than $400,000? Because that's pretty important, right? And after all, why is Joe Biden thinking about making these changes? Well, mostly why Joe Biden is thinking about making these changes is because we, if we jump into the U.S. Treasury's sort of guidance on where we're going to be if we follow this unsustainable fiscal path of basically spending the way we are today on programs like Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, and defense spending. Well, if we stay on this path, eventually the amount of interest we're going to pay as a percentage of GDP is going to potentially go from maybe just paying 3% interest to potentially 25% interest, basically burying us in so much debt because we're spending too much money as a country. The Treasury Department themselves is saying we're basically screwed if we stay on this path. And the only way to fix that path is basically by contributing less or taxing more, right? Or just spending less money via like austerity, which is kind of like what the European Union did. So if we jump over to this, what's really remarkable is over here, this is the loophole and it's probably going to hit limitations from Republicans. I think Republicans are going to push back really, really hard on this, especially since they control the House. This is part of a budget negotiation, though. It's going to come up with the negotiations of the debt limit. Personally, I think this is probably a political ploy. This is probably Joe Biden throwing this in here purposefully to piss off Republicans, to make Republicans go, okay, 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 we'll, we'll let you tax that one and a half percent more on people making more than $400,000 but you need to kill this loophole, this ending of the loophole. So what is the loophole in simple English? Well, in simple English, there is a loophole that if you are self-employed, you can structure your income through an S corporation. You don't have to worry about the name or the phrase or whatever. Basically, you call up a CPA and you go, yo, make my taxes better, okay? And what they can do is the following. They could jump over and say, okay, let's look at your income. Let's say you and your spouse make $150,000 as self-employed people. Let's now go in and say, we're going to pay both of you a $40,000 salary. So we're gonna divide up this 50K income in three ways. We're gonna say 70K of it is a dividend and we're gonna say 40K and 40K are salaries. Now, what we're going to do is we're gonna be able to change the way we pay taxes. See, ordinarily, if you make $150,000 of income, the normal way, you're going to pay somewhere around 12.4% uh, in social security taxes, plus about 3.8, 3.9, let's say in Medicare, oh no, sorry, 3.8 in Medicare. You're gonna pay somewhere around, uh, is that right? Is it 12.2? Maybe it's about 12.2. Puts you somewhere around 16.2% in taxes. So ordinarily, at 16.2% in employment taxes, you're looking at paying just employment taxes of somewhere around $24,300. That's what they're showing here. And this is for someone making under 400K, right? This is 150K. 
Well, if we change it to you getting a salary of 40, a salary of 40, and a 70K dividend, now what we could do is we could avoid paying that 16.2% on 70K. So what we're going to do is we're going to save you $11,340. That's what we're going to save you. Joe Biden is now saying, hey, you know what? We're going to remove your ability to exclude that 3.8% from over here. So in other words, it's going to be an additional tax on people making $150,000 with this structure of somewhere around $2,660. So in this example, simply put, if you're a self-employed person making 150 grand and you're using an S corporation, you might have to pay $2,660 more in taxes because of Joe Biden ending that Medicare loophole. That's the bottom line. So think about that. The Treasury Department says we're on an unsustainable fiscal path. Social Security and Medicare are probably going to run out of money by 2033-ish. Joe Biden here in this sort of breaking news from today in his budget reveal is suggesting, hey, don't worry, we're going to cover some of that problem by making sure we tax people more. And this is going to make sure we can actually get to 2050 without cutting a penny in benefits. That's Joe Biden's argument. Now, will it actually go through with a Republican controlled house? Probably not. Now, a lot of people make the argument that, hey, well, this loophole isn't fair anyway. Why is it that self-employed people get to do this? Well, one of the reasons self-employed people get to do this is because these are known as payroll taxes. And when you're an employee, this burden is split. So when you're an employee, 50% is paid by your employer and 50% is paid by you. When you're self-employed, you're responsible for paying all of it. And in order to incentivize people to pay business or to create businesses and go spend more money on computers, equipment, and take more risk, the government has come up with this idea that, hey, well, let's give entrepreneurs a tax break. Now, that's the way they paint it. But the reality is it's probably the accounting lobby that's like, hey, how can we complicate the tax code some more and basically sell more corporate tax returns? Because if you think about it, if you don't have an S corporation, you could just pay, do your regular 1040 personal income tax return and declare your self-employment income on Schedule C, I believe it is. Uh, now, that is one tax return. If you want to take advantage of this tax loophole and save, you know, 11 grand or whatever in that example, well, now you have to pay a CPA to do your corporate tax return and they might charge you a couple grand a year to do that. So now you've generated a couple grand a year in recurring revenue for accountants. You save $9,000 net net in taxes and the government is out $11,000. So it's probably the accounting lobby that's pushed some of that and is probably why the tax code remains as complicated as it is. But it's very interesting to see Joe Biden create this potentially two-pronged attack. I'm gonna raise taxes on those making over 400K, which is his campaign promise, but in the same vein, he's actually increasing taxes for a lot of self-employed entrepreneurs, especially those making under $150,000, $160,000. A lot of those S-corporation benefits start getting limited once you go above the social security uh, limits of about $160,000 for 2023. The, uh, now you're really only saving about that 3.8%. But what's really remarkable is think about this example. This is where it gets a little bit crazier as well. 
let's say you're making $250,000, right? That 3.8 and you're paying yourself maybe an 80K salary, right? Well, technically you might be saving 3.8% on all of that difference, right? That's a lot because that's $170,000 times 3.8%. Well, if Biden closes that loophole, it's actually going to cost somebody in this situation $6,460. So in other words, if you're self-employed and you have an S-Corp, you're looking at this going, dude, what the hell, man? You said no tax increases on people making under 400K. This is clearly a tax increase on those making under 400K. Uh, closing that loophole is just sort of the media way to cast it aside and say, yeah, well, it was just a loophole anyway, but it's been in existence for a very, very long period of time. And a lot of people use it and rely on that and created S corporations because of that benefit. So it'll be very interesting, but it's just another example of politicians on one hand saying, oh no, we're not raising your taxes, but on the other hand, raising their taxes. Uh, and this is why I have programs on building your wealth, specifically on how to maximize your tax benefits, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an employee, the Elite Hustlers course is great for them. Stocks and Psychology of Money and Zero to Million in Real Estate Investing, those are some of the most popular. But those are, uh, <laughs> that gives you a little bit of insight into what's actually going on with Biden over here. Okay, enough of the Biden tax stuff, we got a lot to cover here. So that's a Biden tax. Now, uh, there's another update, uh, quite a few other updates today. So uh, Gavin Newsom apparently says he doesn't want to do business with Walgreens anymore because Walgreens is now suggesting, hey, we're not going to sell birth control pills or rather even abortion pills in about 20 states. That's because about 20 Republican states have said, look, we are going to fine uh, or basically legally sue companies like Walgreens if they sell abortion pills in 20 states because voters in those 20 states have said, look, we don't want abortion pills to be sold. And look, I'm not going to take a stand on whether abortion is, is what you should believe in or it's not something you should believe in. That's not important here. What's important in this particular update here is for you to know that because 20 states are making it a crime to sell abortion pills, now you have the governor of California trying to make a political point suggesting, you know what we're not going to do? What we're going to do or we're not going to do anymore is we're no longer going to do business with Walgreens. So the governor of California now to make a political statement is literally, quote unquote, reviewing all Medi-Cal and covered California, those are like California public health insurance plans, Medi-Cal uh, being, you know, basically the, the California's version of Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, and, and then you also have uh, the um, uh, uh, the uh, California, oh gosh, what's it called? Um, California, covered California, which is basically the California marketplace for assigning you to private health cares. Uh, but anyway, governor of California, is now literally reviewing all of the California government's expenses to see where do they have deals with Walgreens. And they're basically trying to cut Walgreens out of all of the uh, uh, the deals that California has with Walgreens solely to make a political statement because California is upset that other states have voted to make abortion pills illegal. Now, in my opinion, that is a classic example of weaponizing your government to make a political point for the benefit of yourself, but to the detriment of society. Let's think about it. And this happens on both sides. This is super, super normal. 
On one side, you've got Gavin Newsom now driving up costs in California so he can make a political point about abortion in other states and abortion laws in other states so he can set himself up on a pedestal for a Democratic uh, a campaign for president. That's what he's doing. So he's increasing costs in California to set himself up for a presidential campaign. It's the same reason he sent stimulus checks in October of last year to people making up to $500,000 to buy votes and to prep for a presidential run. It's kind of the same reason why in Florida, you've got DeSantis slamming and essentially censoring Disney by making the argument that, hey, if you speak out against my government, I'm going to be a thorn in your side. Now, whether or not you believe in the Florida don't say gay bill does not matter. Like, I, I, personally, I actually thought it was a pretty decent bill. That, that was my opinion, right? I don't want my five or seven-year-olds talking about gender identity or, or whatever, or sexual identity or any of that. It's, it's too young. That's just my opinion, okay? But my opinion doesn't really matter. The point is, you're having governors on both sides of the country weaponizing their own states and potentially hurting massive industries within their own states that generate tax revenues for their state and reduce costs for their citizens for the benefit of propping up their own presidential campaigns. Now, I mean, that's just probably classic politics because that's just the way the world in America works these days. But it's pretty wild, pretty wild to see this happen. And uh, Bloomberg is calling this his national attention-seeking campaign. Pretty wild, pretty wild. So anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, how uh, politicians, once again, are weaponizing their own state budgets. Uh, to set themselves up on presidential campaigns. Okay, next, uh, apparently Elon, uh, or, um, Twitter is, uh, oh yeah, look at that. Twitter is now firing thousands of people as soon as this week. But we've got to also talk, we've got some financial, we've got a lot of financial stuff to cover. Okay, let's jump into some of this, um, these topics. So the next topic that we're going to cover is we've got to cover what's going on with Tesla and Twitter. So first we'll start Tesla, then we'll, we'll dive into Twitter. So we'll go ahead and call it the uh, Tesla and Twitter uh, craziness. Last part we'll say was uh, governor uh, insanity. Uh, there we go. Okay, good. So Tesla and Twitter craziness. Oh man. Okay. So uh, next thing we have is yes. Here we go. All right. Now we got to talk Tesla and Twitter and some of the craziness that's happening out there. So Tesla just slashed the prices of the Model S and X by $5,000 and $10,000 respectively. So that means 5K on the S and 10K on the X. Uh, the Model S and X, and, and keep in mind, there's a lot here. We're going to talk about BYD and we're also going to talk about some insanity happening at Twitter. But you've got uh, the Tesla Model S and X now receiving the best resale value uh, within a group of 28 U.S. 2023 models receiving the best resale value award. Uh, that's fantastic for Tesla. Some of those that ranked in the high rankings were, number one, the Toyota Tundra. Number two, uh, the Toyota Tacoma, which tied in then, I suppose, second or third place with the Model X. Then you add other models like the Ford Bronco, the Corvette, the Toyota 4Runner, Honda Civic, Ford Maverick, Subaru, uh, Gorstek? I don't know what that is. And the Jeep Gladiator. Uh, anyway, the top 28 models, pretty pretty broad. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to fall into the top 28 models. Uh, so I, I'm not like super jazzed about Kelly Blue Book's uh, uh, argument here that, hey, these are cars with the best resale value. But it is cool that the Model S and X were featured in it. Notably, the Model 3 and Y were not. Now, I find that interesting. 
uh, because at the same time as uh, these, these ratings are coming out and you're seeing these price cuts over at Tesla, you also have Tesla in talks still with Indonesia about potentially building a factory uh, in Indonesia. Now, this is according to Reuters. Reuters just reporting that EV production incentives are being increased in Indonesia. They're not spending a terribly a lot of money on sort of these incentives, so it's probably just politically motivated to try to encourage other manufacturers to come to Indonesia. For example, Reuters is talking about how up to 200,000 motorcycles and 35,900 uh, electric vehicles are going to get small incentives to increase EV adoption. They're also providing around $457.82 stimulus money to individuals to convert gas vehicles to EV or hybrid. I have no idea how $457 is going to do that, but in that same vein, Reuters is reporting that Indonesia is still working on finalizing negotiations with Tesla to potentially build a factory in Indonesia. Uh, there is a large amount of nickel in Indonesia, so we know that Tesla wants to get closer to raw materials. But then again, we also know that Tesla is trying to stay away from nickel-based batteries and believes that nickel-based batteries might only end up being important in the future. Uh, for really long-range vehicles or even planes, and that potentially for uh, cars, we don't actually need nickel-based batteries. So it'll be interesting to see if Tesla does end up manufacturing any kind of or building any kind of manufacturing plant in Indonesia. Keep in mind, Elon Musk is really anti the idea of copy and pasting factories. That is something that I've been calling for for over a year, but I'll take the L on that one. Elon Musk seems much more interested in what in basically doing customized style factories around the world, or maybe in Mexico and Northeast Mexico, where we're still waiting on permits for that development to begin. But the politicians are pretty much, you know, like you know, like super excited about Tesla coming. You can say some. Um, some inappropriate things about how excited they seem to be about Tesla coming, but let's just say they're rolling over to do whatever Tesla needs. So I expect Tesla will be getting those permits very quickly to manufacture a uh, potentially next-gen vehicle manufacturing facility in Northeast Texas. Now, what's also interesting is uh, Elon Musk is uh, getting a little bit of heat. Hi, Jack, you wanna come say hi? Elon Musk is getting a little bit of heat for what's going on at a Twitter. Come on in here, say hi. Did you just wake up, little guy? I heard you. Oh, you heard me because I left the door open? I hope I didn't wake you. No. <laughs> Sorry. No, I didn't? All right. Because I wake up in the middle of the night to go over to mom's bed. <laughs> okay, you're going to go over to mom's bed? Deal. Thanks, dude, for coming in. Okay. We'll see you later. You can hang out if you want. Anyway, so, um, oh, uh, another thing to know is I read, uh, sometimes I like to read the South China Post. And, oh, I'll be careful clicking stuff. Uh, what I really like about the South China Post is even though we know it's probably super biased because, well, it's basically Chinese state-controlled media, right? One of the things that I think is really cool is take a look at this, what they say in this potentially state-controlled media. Over here, China's two sessions, 2023, anyway, uh, it says here, outgoing premier vows, quote, even greater business opportunities for foreign investment. And what you see here is, while acknowledging that external demand will remain relatively weak, China is signaling its intent to better integrate global trade and enhance China's appeal to foreign investors. And at the bottom of the article here, it talks about how they want to facilitate the launch of landmark foreign-funded projects, kind of like what happened with Tesla Gigafactory uh, Shanghai, which is one of Li Qing's major achievements during his term in Shanghai, 
Whether more projects like uh, this will be launched is something we should look forward to. So look at that, for example. You basically have the South China Post here uh, talking about how China wants to be more open economically to capitalism. It reiterates what President Xi Jinping says about China that, hey, we want more foreign direct investment in China. And in the Chinese propaganda papers, they're basically saying, hey, you know what a great example of foreign investment is? Tesla. So they're actually propping up Tesla. A lot of Tesla investors have been concerned that there's a possibility Tesla might end up getting sort of restrictions placed on Giga Shanghai because Xi Jinping is basically fighting uh, the United States and there's some combativeness between the two countries here regarding sanctions or, or uh, trade restrictions, chip restrictions, whatever. So a lot of Tesla investors are worried, crap, you know, what does that mean for Tesla? Uh, if, if Xi Jinping could probably just flick his fingers or snap his fingers and put limitations on Giga Shanghai. In fact, there are already some limitations on Giga Shanghai. Giga Shanghai potentially wants to double from a million vehicles per year to potentially two million per vehicles per year. But you're actually seeing some restrictions being placed on that expansion. So this could be China just talking out of both sides of its mouth. But let me put it this way, out of a bottom line on China and Tesla, I actually think it's phenomenal that China is bragging about Giga Shanghai because it means that if Giga Shanghai ends up getting the middle finger from China, you're going to have even fewer American countries want, or companies want to trust in China to invest in China. And it's one of the reasons I think you're seeing companies like Foxconn, Apple, and a lot of companies starting to invest in countries like India and Indonesia instead because they're worried about China. So China really has a lot of damage that they need to repair for their reputation if they really want to double down on this idea of let's get more foreign direct investment into uh, into China. And that's why you're seeing a lot of attention on Indonesia and India right now. India potentially being that place where people think the per capita income in, in India could 10x. Thailand is also getting a massive boost. $57 billion going into EVs and smart electronics by 2030, they believe. They think in Thailand they're going to create 625,000 new EV jobs and boost productivity massive priorities. BYD is looking to also increase manufacturing in Thailand. On top of that, uh, traders uh, uh, over at BYD are looking at BYD trying to diversify away from China, especially since reports are now out that dealers are cutting prices at BYD after Tesla cut prices, then Xpeng and Neo cut prices, and now apparently BYD is cutting prices and their margins are already really tight. They take maybe 3% to the bottom line, and if they cut prices 3%, people are like, how is BYD going to make any money? Now, BYD issued a statement on this, and they say, hey, look, those are distributors' promotional discounts. Those are not official cuts from BYD, says BYD. The Chinese media is reporting that, hey, you know what? BYD is slashing prices. So you're kind of seeing excessive price cuts throughout the entire EV industry, potentially to rejigger demand. You're seeing uh, a lot of fear right now in BYD pricing, the stock pricing, which is lagging Teslas, particularly because people are worried about a lack of PP or a lack of pricing power that uh, BYD might end up having. So you're seeing some massive movement over here 
at uh, BYD and how the stock is trading solely because of these price cuts. So, and that's all thanks to Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk, well, I mean, it would have happened anyway, probably, but Elon Musk starting potentially this price war. Initially, a lot of people thought, oh, BYD will be insulated. Yeah, oops, nope, not likely. Now, who else is not insulated? And I think this is really interesting, is what's going on at Twitter. Let's talk about some of the craziness that's going on at Twitter because there's talk about bodyguards going into Twitter bathrooms with Elon Musk. There's talk about Twitter's profitability still being a little bit of an issue. We're gonna look at exactly that. I do wanna remind you that, of course, I've got amazing programs on building your wealth linked down below, which give you phenomenal perspective on building your wealth. Zero to millionaire real estate investing, stocks and psychology money course. Those are the top two most popular. We did just launch the revamped Elite Hustlers program, which comes with its own exclusive live streams in addition to the course member live streams that every course member gets. And they're pretty incredible for entrepreneurs and self-employed people, as well as employees looking to increase their revenue and decrease their taxes. But let's jump into this over here. This is Twitter's revenue. Adjusted earnings apparently fell 40% in December, according to the Wall Street uh, Journal. This is an update in an update to investors. Twitter reported a decline of 40% year over year revenue. Now this is different from in November when we were looking at year over year numbers. It was potentially as bad as a 90% decline in advertisers actually spending money at Twitter. So it seems like things are getting a little bit better at Twitter, but you're still having some insane firings happening at Twitter, which is creating a lot of fear over at Twitter that the worst is not over yet. What you've got over here is Musk purchase of the company with annual interest payments estimated at more than $1 billion in just interest payments. Now they did make their first interest payment already, but what's worth noting is that the company is saying some advertisers are reporting to the platform and the company expects to break even in 2023, but the interest payment at Twitter is probably hitting a rate of somewhere around 15% for the interest paid over at Twitter. You also have a company that's gone from about 8,000 employees to about 2,000 employees. So massive, massive cuts over at Twitter. Now, on one hand, more cuts at Twitter is good for Tesla investors because obviously Tesla stock was the piggy bank that led to the acquisition of Twitter for Elon Musk. The piggy bank continued to be broken to be able to fund losses at Twitter. According to the Wall Street Journal, more losses are occurring, especially since revenue is, uh, has, is basically down 40%. Now that's a problem. Now if expenses can be cut substantially, that's fantastic because Twitter wasn't even profitable before Elon Musk took over, which is a problem. But uh, let's just say, if we can get a decline in advertising from somewhere around maybe 80 to 90% when Elon Musk first took over in October to just a 40% decline and staff is cut somewhere around 70 to 80%, maybe, maybe we can indeed get to that path to profitability. Now remember, Elon Musk promises, uh, and it's just a promise, so he could U-turn on it, that he should not have to sell more Tesla stock in 2023. Hopefully he doesn't have to sell more Tesla stock in 2024. Uh, but, you know, he's leaving open the idea of having to sell Tesla stock again in 2025. That has also led to a massive increase in the number of people who are actually uh, buying, especially retail investors who are buying Tesla stock. The number of retail investors buying Tesla stock has exploded. Last year, we put in about 15 to $17 billion of HODL stock as retail investors. This year, to date, by March 7th, we've already put in about $13 billion of HODL money. It's insane, absolutely insane. 
Another thing that is insane is uh, take a look at some of these reports that we're seeing uh, going on uh, over at Twitter. So first thing we're going to do is look at this tweet storm over here. Here, you've got somebody writing, Dear Elon Musk, Nine days ago, the access to my work computer was cut along with 200 other Twitter employees. By the way, one of those other 200 Twitter employees in 2020 beat me on buying one of those full house homes in San Francisco. If you actually type into YouTube, meet Kevin full house home painted lady, you'll see me walking through and analyzing the deal. I'm really glad I didn't buy it because I would have gotten sandbagged with it during COVID and run through all the San Francisco politics that go into renovations. But one of the Twitter employees who sold her company to Twitter ended up also being part of these 200 employees that just had their access to their computers turned off on Saturday. And just this week are finding out that they got fired. Now, what's really interesting is this tweet storm and the way it sort of breaks down. Look at this. Nine days ago, access to my work computer was cut along with 200 other Twitter employees. However, your head of HR has not been able to confirm whether I'm an employee or not. You've not answered my emails. Maybe if enough people retweet, you'll be able to answer me here. Well, this ended up getting like 15,000 retweets. And this person ends up trying to tag Jack and other people. Elon Musk ends up replying. Listen to this. Elon Musk replies with, what work have you been doing? And he replies, hey, well, I'll need to break confidentiality to break that question or to basically tell you what I've been doing here. And Elon replies, it's approved. You go ahead. And so the individual replies, uh, among other things, led an effort to save about $500,000 on one SaaS contract supported by close supported closing down many others. Really sounds like a lot of cost cutting going on. Led the prioritization of design projects across the country to make sure we were able to deliver with a small team. Okay, so you prioritized what you were working on. Okay, got it. Led design crits to help level up design across the country. Or sorry, country, company. Okay, I don't personally know what that means, design crits, but then again, I'm, I'm not in that world. Was a hiring manager for all design roles. Okay, well, I don't think Twitter's hiring right now, so that's probably not a good thing. Worked on efforts to steer the company away from focusing power on users, uh, uh, focusing on power users and onto younger users because our user base is aging. Now, I thought that was really interesting, suggesting that the Twitter user base is getting older, so let's move away from power users and focus more on younger Twitter people. Okay. Uh, I could go on. Am I allowed to talk about how the company has operated since you took over? Now, this is kind of like dangerous and risky to say that because you're kind of like talking to the boss like, hey, can I like basically publicly potentially talk about how you suck as a boss? Uh, and then also the original question, can we talk about that as to whether or not I'm still employed? And then he actually updates his tweet to say, uh, the HR manager actually did just miraculously reply, so I finally have confirmation that I no longer work at Twitter. The next question is how you will make sure I get paid for what I'm owed per my contract. Okay, let me first say, if you're going to try to publicly out your boss about how you're upset that your access has been disabled and you're complaining about how basically your job was hiring people and leading teams that potentially don't exist anymore and you're curious about whether your job still exists, I understand maybe some more clear-cut communication on Saturday would have been nice rather than your computer just getting shut off. But uh, what's pretty remarkable here is this con this suggestion that, okay, well, how are you going to make sure I still get paid per my contract? Like, if I was somebody looking to hire someone in the world of tech and I'm like, hey, maybe you're a great worker at Twitter, but you're no longer needed, I guarantee you I would not hire this person 
for the attitude here. Like, look, the first one, the first one, I don't blame you, okay? You didn't hear back, so it's like, hey, man, like, maybe people can help me out on Twitter. Totally fair game. Like, that one, fair game, okay? This one, like, going into describing about what you're doing, fair game, fine. You know what? You're either not needed anymore or you're needed. What's up, Jack? How do you spell YouTube? YouTube, like that? There you go. Jack's replying to people in the comments. Go ahead. You can hit enter. So anyway, uh, so, so, you know, that, that fair game. But as soon as you get into this, this threat of, hey, can I talk about how the company has operated since you took over? And my original question, how come you haven't replied yet? Oh, now I'm miraculously getting a reply from HR. How convenient now that I'm getting views on Twitter. Oh, and can you make sure I get paid? It's like, ah, like not, not the way, in my opinion, to try to set yourself up to getting a job somewhere else. Personally, that kind of discussion would not be getting hired by me. The first part was okay. The next part was ridiculous. Now, it at the same time is leading to a lot of fear because look what you have here. The Daily Beast is now reporting that bodyguards are following Elon Musk everywhere at Twitter, even to the restroom. Billionaire Elon Musk is routinely followed around at Twitter headquarters by two bulky bodyguards, even when he goes to the restroom, according to a Twitter engineer. Two bearded guards went viral back in January after they accompanied Musk at, at a securities fraud trial and appeared to have accompanied him to Twitter after his $44 billion purchase. A Twitter engineer, engineer uh, identified only as Sam, says wherever he goes in the office, there are at least two bodyguards, very bulky, tall, Hollywood movie bodyguards, even when he goes to the restroom. He said constant use of bodyguards suggested that Musk, who has sacked a huge number of Twitter staff, including coders, does not trust his remaining staff. Uh, yeah. Anyway, pretty crazy. Pretty, pretty wild stuff that's going on. So obviously, still a lot of Twitter tensions. Those Twitter tensions have the real potential of weighing on Tesla stock in the future. Because as we know, Tesla stock is Elon Musk's piggy bank. So drama going on at Twitter does matter for Tesla. And anybody who tells you otherwise does not understand finance. Now, look, I think everybody still has a lot to learn in finance. And I don't think that learning is a bad idea. Everybody can learn more. But anybody who says that Elon Musk selling Tesla did not lead to the massive downtrend and massive ability to short Tesla to the dirt last year is out of their freaking mind. Tesla's massive collapse last year was primarily the responsibility of Elon Musk selling shares to buy Twitter. Now, yes, that led to a trend. Yes, there was some other bad news that contributed to some decline, but not down to 100 bucks. That was insane. That was a fundamental deal of the century. And it was all a response uh, or, or all a result of, in my opinion, the Twitter act. So, therefore, some of the madness that's going on at Twitter, in my opinion, if you're a Tesla investor, important to pay attention to. Which one should I uh, Jack, what's your favorite cereal? Um, uh, Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch, he says. All right, let's look at another one. Uh, what games do you play, Jack? Uh, Minecraft and Roblox. Minecraft and Roblox. Got it. Okay. Uh, I can understand bodyguards at Walmart's. Bath guard, or bathroom is a very dangerous place. Somebody here calls you Meet Jack. What do you think about that? Mm. Eh? If somebody here says, are you going to start an investment and finance channel so my son can watch you and learn about money? Um, probably a YouTube, like probably a gaming channel. Probably a gaming channel is what you want to start with. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what about uh, your thoughts on the International Monetary Fund, the IMF? It's basically they, they, they print money for the world. What do you think about them? 
Cool, he says. Very cool. Okay. Jack, do you like gold? Yes. Or do you prefer diamonds? He's Steve. Oh, it's Steve. Steve. Steve's asking about gold. <laughs> Jack's like, yeah, there's Steve. Where does Steve live? In Minecraft house. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. All right. What? What? Oh, good Lord. There's so much to cover. Okay. Oh, my goodness. All right. Now we got to talk about excess savings and recession. All right. Here we go. Well, give me one sec, Jack. Let me grab that really quick. Uh, huh. Yeah, of course. I'm not so fine. All right, you want me to type it for you? Yeah. There you go. Go ahead and push the button. All right, Jack's saying bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> See you later, dude. Bye. You gonna have fun at school today? No? <laughs> Thanks, dude. Now we got to talk about the disaster that could actually be facing us. And yeah, it is the recession because we've regularly been talking about excess savings and how excess savings are potentially the white knight in the no landing fairy tale. Oh, crap. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, analysts are now suggesting that this idea that we can keep flying uh, in the economy without having to land either via a soft landing or a hard landing recession suggests that everybody's just going to keep spending through this recession. And as long as inflation trends down, we're Gucci. Everything will be just fine. After all, Bank of America has widely told us that, hey, look, people who used to have $2,500 to $5,000 in their bank accounts now hold somewhere around $12,800 in their bank accounts. And that has only been drawn down by about 4.4% over the last year. That really suggests that, hey, if people have a lot of excess money, maybe they could keep spending, keep doling it out, and actually lead to a GDP increase. Now, that's very interesting because a GDP increase would obviously mean no recession. No recession and continued spending might mean that consumer staples, which I personally think are going to get reamed in a recession, particularly companies like Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, any kind of restaurant, uh, Target, Walmart, Costco, you name it. I personally think they're all going to get reamed under substantially higher costs. They're all scrambling to find more productivity or ways to be productive. Even Tyson Foods is freaking out. Like, we got enough employees. Now we got to figure out how to be more efficient because we're not hiring anymore because we got enough employees. Okay? The excess savings, though, is potentially dwindling away. But at what level? And that's what we want to pay attention to because the only thing that, in my opinion, could potentially save the staples and restaurants or the companies that I just mentioned are XSA. But unfortunately, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, does not see inflation coming down fast enough, certainly not by the fourth quarter. In fact, he suggests that the Federal Reserve could end up being substantially more patient rather than necessarily continue to hike but just remain at a high level for substantially longer than the market is anticipating. 
Now, by some accounts, it's entirely possible that the Federal Reserve needs to hike rates up to five and a half to six percent, hike rates up to five and a half to six percent before they're done. But they could actually potentially remain at those high levels for so long that once excess savings are depleted and they have less liquidity or less access to credit, we can actually end up seeing the real pain from this recession. Now, Bloomberg Economics believes that households today have at best 12 months of excess savings runway. At worst case scenario, six months left. That puts the recession in alignment with when excess savings run out of between September of 2023 and March of 2024. Bloomberg Economics suggests that excess savings are somewhere potentially as high as $1.7 trillion. However, that $1.7 trillion may not account for capital losses that people have incurred due to investments they've made over the last couple of years losing value. When you consider that, excess savings might only be $1.4 trillion. And the, uh, uh, the, the Bloomberg staff actually believes that a lot of that $1.4 trillion might end up being really illiquid. So Bloomberg suggests, what if only, or what if the excess savings we have are actually way smaller than the reality, or, or, or than what we actually currently think there are? In other words, what if we run out of this excess savings way sooner than we think? Remember, right now we know that the excess savings, or, or just the savings rate in America, has fallen to ridiculously low levels, right? You could just Google that, St. Louis Fred, and type in savings rate, and you'll see that the savings rate has fallen to very low levels. This is a very common argument of the bears. The bars pull up the savings rate, and what they like to suggest is, well, look, the savings rate has plummeted, therefore we're going into a recession. And if we just zoom into about the last 10 years, yes, the savings rate used to sit around 7%, it exploded during the government stimulus payment era. That makes a lot of sense. But we've actually seen that savings rate plummet to levels as low as somewhere around 3% and potentially now sitting around 4.5%, which is well below that trend average of about 6.9% before the pandemic. So we have a below trend savings rate. That's what the bears say. This is bad. This is a red flag. The bulls counter that and say, but we have so much excess savings. Well, Bloomberg is now countering the bull's argument and saying, maybe we have excess savings, but what if a lot of that is illiquid? Let's try to look at some real estimates that Bloomberg suggests. Bloomberg thinks the people with the lowest 60% of incomes have just $566 billion in excess savings. That works out, which sounds like a lot, but when you consider 60% of the population, divide that out, that works out to only one to three months of excess savings. That means as soon as this next quarter, that is the next three months, March, April, May, which is not really a calendar quarter, but it's just a quarter, right? Over the next quarter, we could potentially see staples start getting whacked because the poor people, that is the lower 60% of individuals, that is the poorer 60%, I know that might sound offensive, but it is statistically what it is. I'm just going to stick with the statistics here, okay? Lower 60% might have to start cutting back substantially within the next one to three months. That is a big red flag if you're exposed, in my opinion, to any kind of stocks that are exposed to lower income spending. Let me tell you the opposite. Who is not exposed, generally, to that lower 60%? Tesla, Apple, Enphase, Semiconductors, Solar Edge. See what I'm doing? The people who spend money 
on more expensive devices, more expensive cars, more expensive homeowner investments like energy, more expensive chipsets, which companies buy and servers buy. Those, in my opinion, are going to be companies that are going to be insulated from this lack of spending. That makes sense. That doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what's going to happen, but it's one of the reasons I have a strategy called focusing on investing in high free cash flowing pricing power stocks. I believe companies that are selling stuff to people with more money have pricing power, even during a recession. I believe those companies are recession resilient. Now that doesn't mean they're perfect in a recession. They could still draw down and be very, very volatile. But I think coming out of the recession and even going through the recession, they will fare much better than other stocks. That's just my belief. That's my investing thesis. Who knows? But Bloomberg Economist is now calling for, or Bloomberg Economics, I should say, is now calling for a recession in the second half, assuming savings run out in the next three months for that lower 60%. However, if the savings last longer, they believe the recession could begin at the beginning of 2024. So it really sort of aligns with that estimate that probably between September and March is where we're looking at it. Now, Bloomberg Economics suggests that uh, there are two different estimates. If we have around $770 billion of excess savings per person, not just the lower 60%, but for everyone, we're sitting at around $5,900 of savings per household. If we have $1.7 trillion, the higher estimate, we have around $13,000 of excess savings per household. But again, we have to potentially adjust that for how much of those savings are illiquid or how much of those have suffered from capital losses because they've invested money and lost money. And what happens when household savings and household wealth starts declining and then all of a sudden the wealth effect kicks in where because home values are going down, people start spending less money on residential improvements, which also could affect energy stocks or battery related stocks, right? And what do you end up having? You end up having a recession. Now, the good news is you have a lot of companies, like yesterday we were looking at a geothermal company, a uh, fantastic geothermal company, a valuation, well, I'll save the valuation for the course member live stream, but we went through a geothermal company, it's probably, it's the largest, uh, one of the largest in, in the world, uh, and, uh, and, and we talked a lot about sort of its balance sheet and its revenues and its cash flows and its valuations, uh, and, and really the future for the company. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, that company was specifically talking about how battery costs seem to be declining because of less EV spending in China. Kind of interesting. Also a red flag, yes, for Tesla, but also specifically for BYD, which is generally appealing to a lower income audience, right? Anyway, Bloomberg Economics goes on to say that as wealth increases, the savings rate can tend to be less. So they're trying to counter argue this lower savings rate. They're basically saying, look, if people feel richer, they don't necessarily have to save as much money. That they do save money when they get it from the government, but they don't necessarily have to save as much money if they have more wealth. So it is possible that we do still have a lot of excess savings. The big question though now is how much? Do we have enough excess savings to get us through the next three months? or enough excess savings to get us through the next year. And when we align this with inflation, obviously if we only have enough excess savings to get us through the next six months from poorer folks, well then you're going to see consumer staples get hit first and hard and that recession comes sooner. If it takes us two years to get through inflation, well then potentially everything gets whacked, the lower income related stocks and the higher income stocks. If inflation goes away by the beginning of 2024, and wealthier people still have excess savings and poorer people don't, then maybe only staples get whacked and the more expensive stocks or more expensive selling stocks, the ones who sell stuff to people with more money, maybe those don't get hit as hard. 
So you're kind of playing this teeter-totter game where based on excess savings, we're going to determine how bad the recession ends up being for how many different companies. Now, it's also very interesting and in my opinion, very relatable to what you have here on YouTube is the following. The suggestion that lowest, the lowest income households have stopped accumulating financial assets as early as 2022 and in early 2022, they suggest. I should reread that correctly. They stopped lowest income households have stopped accumulating financial assets early in 2022. Now, that's actually really interesting because if you look at finance YouTube, you will see that finance YouTube viewership has fallen off of a cliff across all of finance. It's not just some individuals. It's all of finance is getting whacked. There's a reason for that. It's because lower income households who were interested in finance in 2020 and 2021 are no longer as interested in finance. Bloomberg is reiterating that. I'm taking an anecdote to reiterate that as well. Now, that's very interesting because that's sort of the cyclical trend. When you get everybody interested in finance, views are up. Less people are interested in finance, views are down. Personally, I almost wonder if it potentially makes sense to time how you invest in either stocks or real estate based on finance viewership on YouTube. If everybody is watching real estate videos on YouTube, maybe everybody's trying to get ready to buy real estate. If real estate YouTube videos aren't doing that well, maybe less people are interested in buying real estate because it's a tougher time and cash is less readily available. It's really interesting. It's something I'm paying attention to because I think that the people who watch my content are uh, people who are probably mostly between the ages of 25 and 45 and are looking to build their wealth and build their income. That's obviously why I have courses uh, to add even more perspective to what I can provide on YouTube. Going to the course member live stream after this video, for example. Uh, but what's really important is that when you lose sort of the fringes of the, the other income, either younger people or people potentially with less money, it's a sign that the market is getting tougher, right? Obviously, that aligns with the market. Obviously, it aligns with what we're seeing with excess savings. If people don't have money to invest anymore, what's the point of watching finance content? Very interesting. Now, credit card interest rates are expected to reset substantially higher uh, throughout the rest of this year as well, which will crimp uh, substantially excess savings as well. And Bloomberg basically says the runway is not long enough for us to get through without a recession. They're basically calling for a recession because we do not have enough excess savings to prevent a recession. There's no way is what Bloomberg expects. And again, I've said it many times in this video, which stocks I think will do the best and worst. But let me give you an example of one that isn't doing so well right now. Dick's Sporting Goods just posted its smallest quarterly gross margin since the first quarter of 2021, heightened uh, or because of, quote, heightened promotional activity during the holiday season to basically put pressure on margins due to massive discounting. But it's not just retailers who are massively discounting. It's also manufacturers who are starting to see it. We are seeing the strongest weakness in two years of growth for manufacturing right now. New ISM uh, data shows that we are down in manufacturing 1.7% from May of 2022, roughly the peak on a three-month average. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but remember, for you to have growth, you need everything to grow. Like, stuff needs to go up, not down. If GDP was negative 1.7%, it would be terrible. That is a bad GDP decline. I mean, a soft landing is like a negative 0.2%. 
GDP. Negative point or 1.7% would be terrible. ISM orders on a three month average basis, moving average, down 1.7%. So the retrenching is starting. Manufacturing does only represent 11% of GDP, but it's an early indicator of recession. Now people are remodeling less. They're buying less appliances. They're buying less furniture. They're buying less carpeting. Uh, all of these items are down 15% in January year over year, by the way. Previously uh, owned home sales are at levels that we haven't seen since the crash of 2008 uh, because less people were moving. So less people are investing in homes. People usually buy new things after they move. You get new appliances after you move, right? Machinery is down 1.8%. Uh, steel and iron metals are down 3.8%. These sort of primary metals. The output of plastics uh, and, and other sort of industrial goods are also down. In other words, like basically good luck, like a recession is coming. Job gains in the last three months have hit the slowest pace in the last 18 months. So last three months, slowest pace in the last 18 months. We're gonna need luck, essentially, to avoid a recession at this point. Car production still hasn't recovered. Business inventories in Q4 are higher in November and December than at any point since 2009, the Great Recession. You've got a pileup of inventories that's also now hitting sub-suppliers. Think about it. If you sell t-shirts, like custom printed t-shirts, you're looking and you're like, well, we don't need to buy as many new printing presses because we don't have as many new orders. But now we also have to buy less ink for our silk printing or, or however that's done. We have to buy less cotton or yarn or stitching or whatever. Everything gets hit when the economy slows down. Construction demand is expected to fall 11% this year. It's, it's all a disaster. Like when it comes to excess savings and the disaster uh, that is pointing to a recession, you gotta be really careful. It is a hard time to invest right now. Again, there's a reason why I personally am trying to focus on software related companies where I think the spending will continue. Chips, Apple, Tesla, uh, some of the energy companies that are starting to look like a juicy deal, although there's still more downside ahead, especially if real estate weakens even more. And this is where you really want to pay attention to that 10-year uh, yield curve because right now you're sitting at about 3.96 on the 10-year. It's expensive. It's going to hurt real estate. Absolutely going to hurt. So anyway, this gives you a lot of data, a lot of info. Hopefully you found this helpful. If you like this, my goal is to stream every day uh, basically every single day, no matter where I am, I'm going to Florida later this, uh, actually I'm flying to Florida today. Oh, good Lord. I gotta be in Puerto Rico tomorrow, back in Florida. Oh, there's a lot to do. But anyway, my goal is to still provide the value every single morning, all right, before the market opens. Jay Powell does speak at 7 a.m. Uh, this morning, so in about 33 minutes. Uh, I will see you for that. Anyway, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.